Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, the new director of the National Defense Industrial Association's Emerging Technologies Institute with his priorities and his blockbuster upcoming conference. But first, joining us is Dr. Paul McGinn. He is a professor of chemical and molecular engineering at the College of Engineering at the University of Notre Dame. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Glad to be here. Thanks. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's upcoming Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show. Uh, Paul, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure having you on, as I mentioned. Um, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, we went from euphoria surrounding the announcement that South Korea had developed a potentially new game-changing material, uh, LK-99, supposed to be superconductive at room temperature and ambient pressure. That would revolutionize everything from, uh, you know, computing, communications to electric power distributions and and, and batteries and the like. And... Pretty much as soon as you know we started getting excited, it started turning into into skepticism, um, and and so because of that, we thought, hey, this is a great opportunity for us to take a look at what is the state of the art uh, in materials because it's a field in which there are so many dramatic uh, advancements from uh, where you study it from, from the molecular uh, and the nano level, all the way up to uh, higher temperature stuff for uh, hypersonic uh, applications. On the commercial side, it's moving like gangbusters. Uh, you know, I mentioned the fact that my son is a high-end furniture maker, but now he's working in materials and using uh, technologies that actually weren't available uh, to folks even five five years ago. What do we know about LK99? What it can and can't do? Because this isn't the first time that we've uh, actually, you know, had expectations and enthusiasm collide with uh, data and reality. Right. Right now, it looks like is not exhibiting uh, the Meissner effect, which is what you associate with a superconductor, uh, which means that it repels magnetic fields and will levitate above a magnet. It's worth continuing investigations just to clarify exactly what's going on in this material. Uh, it seems to be one that's very difficult to process. Uh, I think people really need to figure out what the magic composition is of the LK99 was exhibiting uh, possible uh, levitation above a magnet. So it's it's something worth continuing to investigate, but it is not uh, clearly showing uh, clear evidence of superconductivity at this point. Uh, that's right, because it, it could be actually a much more conventional magnet that's at play here, as opposed to something uh, that has superconductive properties. Correct. And in order to really figure that out, you need higher quality samples. And I think the material is difficult to process. And so the best quality samples have not been made yet, which would uh, clearly answer the questions that people have. Um, and uh, b uh, b before we got started, you know, you'd, you'd mentioned that, right, I mean, it's it's uh, a kind of lead with a lattice that's inside of it. Is if I, Am I understanding this correctly as a layperson, as, as a journalist who merely dabbles in this? 
Well, it's got a number of elements in it. Uh, it's crystalline, which is why it has a lattice. One of those elements, one of the primary elements is lead. So it's a, it's a lead-based compound. And one of the reasons that it's difficult to process is because when you heat it up to get the chemical reactions going, the lead also wants to volatilize. And so that necessitates special processing techniques to try and contain that. So yeah, ideally, if you were picking a material, you wouldn't want something that has lead in it. But if it ended up being this fantastic material and oh, by the way, it has lead, well, then people would figure out how to deal with it simply right. because of the great properties that it would have. Um, let me uh, take you. Uh, so obviously, that's a work in progress, right? I mean, there is a 1%, but hey, it could be a very big payoff uh, in that uh, 1%. But more broadly, material sciences, uh, nanoengineering uh, are just all accelerating. Uh, graphenes, which we've known for a long time, or graphite uh, allotropes, uh, have all manner of uh, electronic and electrical uh, application. Um, what are the major developments across the material field that you think are the most exciting and are likely going to have the biggest uh, commercial as well as uh, potentially national security payoffs? Well, I would say in general, <clears throat> our ability to investigate and develop new materials will accelerate with time. So traditionally, you made one sample, you analyzed it, you made another sample, you analyzed it, and you did these things serially, and it took a long time to play out. Now we're able to bring many more tools and much better technology to bear. So you're starting to see uh, the advent of uh, artificial intelligence uh, and, and means to better predict where we might find uh, interesting kinds of properties. And we can start coupling that with our ability to start investigating more materials simultaneously, uh, what's known as high throughput experimentation, where you can uh, start uh, making many compounds simultaneously and, and, and characterizing them simultaneously. This is kind of a technique that has been developed and refined in the pharmaceutical industry in the search for new drugs. And it's the kind of thing that people are slowly figuring out who, how to adapt to uh, investigate new materials. Now, the complexity with materials, just like we alluded to with the LK99, uh, depending on how you process the material, it can affect what kind of properties you see. So just because you have a composition, you still need to figure out, well, what's the best way to process that to, to give the kind of properties we want. So that makes the, the, the investigation a little more complex. But the the rate of materials discovery will continue to increase with time because we have better tools and and better ways to to conduct these investigations. Um, a, a lot of uh, the uh, advancements are being driven by battery technology, by dri driven by electronics. Um, uh, certainly on the semiconductor side, I mean, it is uh, pressing one state of the art after another as we try to get that uh, density uh, on uh, uh, computer chips. Um, the Biden administration made the major investment in uh, the uh, with the Chips Act. Um, how is that driving 
the material sciences forward as, as well, right? I mean, that's for a, a specific application. But actually, if you look at all the spending that's happening, both in the climate measure, in the CHIPS Act, there's an enormous amount of science, technology, and engineering money that is being invested. And, and the, the government is doing this in order to be able to kind of compound benefit of it, right? It's making an investment that then attracts even more commercial investment, as we've seen in, for example, uh, semiconductors and microchips. How does this, from your standpoint, how is this going to be driving the material sciences forward? Well, one of the things they're trying to do in the semiconductor world is control the placement of atoms on a finer and finer scale, right? So the, the line widths have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller with time, which means the machines to make those are increasingly complex, right? So a, a semiconductor fab now costs billions of dollars because the tool sets to be able to control uh, atoms at such a fine scale are, are, are you know, are, are just, enormously expensive and the ability to do it uh, depends on these these machines. And that's why you have to continue to develop these sophisticated tools in order to be able to uh, achieve these goals. At the same time, the ability to control where atoms are on a fine scale uh, is exactly what feeds into developing new materials. So lots, as people have come to appreciate much of materials properties can depend on the interfaces between different materials, right? So if you have a, a stack of dissimilar materials, uh, the tendency when you heat that up is for those different elements to start interdiffusing and not be able to have these abrupt interfaces. Well, in the semiconductor world, uh, they depend on these abrupt interfaces and many new materials we might envision uh, meta materials that have you know different types of atoms there. We want to be able to say exactly where the atoms are and keep them in in those positions. Uh, and so this dovetails nicely with exactly the kinds of of technologies that would drive the Chips Act, where uh, you need to be able to control where you put atoms. You need to have them stay put uh, over long periods of time during the operation of this device. Uh, and so they 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 fit in uh, nicely with one another's. Uh, you're trying to develop, you know, one of the things they would like to do is is be able to implement two D materials like graphene uh, into semiconductor fabrication. And so this is uh, exactly the kind of case where you want to put down a layer of atoms, you know, one or two uh, layers only be able to keep them there. Uh, and it's a super difficult thing to be able to do. But if you can achieve it, then you can see the, the benefit of some of these new materials being brought into uh, semiconductor fabrication. Um, let me uh, just ask, because um, I want to get into a uh, uh, last question on science engineering. But first, I have to ask you, right? I mean, the United States has always prided itself on sort of being on the cutting edge of materials uh, sciences. Uh, but there are a lot of other countries out there that have formidable capabilities. The United Kingdom is one of them. Uh, the Netherlands, obviously, because of some of its printing technology, the Japanese. Uh, Russians have always prided themselves on being very good in metallurgy. And then the Chinese really have been making a vast national investment in this. Has the, I mean, does the United States have sort of structural advantages uh, in this field? Or is this now actually a much more distributed global race where 
uh, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, China, you know, the many nations are actually Germany uh, has always been a leader in, you know, Sweden. Um, has this game been changing at all? I mean, is the United States relative lead staying there or is it actually eroding as as the sort of playing field distributes? What's the well, best way to look at this? Other nations have uh, caught up and in some cases may exceed what we can do in certain kinds of areas. But, you know, the way it's, you know, breaking down in a geopolitical sense, it's kind of uh, the Western world versus China or the Western world versus uh, 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 Russia. So the fact that uh, Germany may be ahead of us in certain aspects in the machine tool industry or things like that isn't necessarily a problem if these are people that we are friendly with and have right. good cooperation with. It's more problematic when uh, you know China says, hey, we're going to clamp down on rare earth metals distribution to the rest of the world, or when they are uh, promoting advancement of their solar industry and 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 everyone else is uh, laggards in that respect so you know you if there's enough of in in the west of this technology and it keeps developing that's then there's not too much of an issue with it being distributed between nations uh, but that's something one needs to keep an eye on um, let me ask you uh, the last question. Obviously, you're in a college of engineering at a leading university in the United States. Um, in interview after interview, um, you know, folks are telling me that there's actually renewed interest uh, of, uh, you know, America's youth in uh, going into engineering disciplines, right? Whether it's been inspired by, uh, you know, SpaceX or ever more capable electric cars, uh, artificial intelligence, human climate engineering. From your sort of front row perspective, um, is is the discipline enjoying a renaissance? And if it's not, what are the things that by policy we should be doing to actually encourage that, right? I mean, the, during the Eisenhower administration, when we had a space race, we made it, you know, very attractive through tax and other uh, and scholarships and the like to make engineering a more ex uh, exciting field. And a lot of people went into it and we landed men on the moon and benefited for decades after that. Um, how how do you see uh, the, the the discipline and and the kind of talent that it's attracting uh, domestically and and even internationally? Yeah, it tends to be cyclic. Uh, so kids pick areas of study based on where they think they will have a good future. Right, good being financially emotionally interesting things to do. Uh, so if you put a huge bag of money out there and told them, hey, you're all going to be able to start with gigantic salaries, uh, people would rush into that area regardless of what it is. Okay. So, you know, for a number of years, uh, computer science has been on an upswing and all of a sudden, People are finding out that, oh, there aren't as many jobs. You know, people like Google and Facebook were hiring cra like crazy, and now they start laying people off. And so then uh, kids thinking about college will look at that and say, huh, maybe that isn't the guaranteed path forward I was thinking of. Let me investigate other kinds of things. And by the same token, we see a lot of kids getting, a lot of kids get engineering degrees 
as kind of a security blanket uh, because they're not really sure what they want to do. <clears throat> and so they go through engineering and a fair percentage of them end up in the financial sector. So, you know, at Notre Dame, I would say 20, 25% of the kids that get engineering degrees end up getting snapped up by uh, financial firms because they know how to work with numbers, right? What, what people value right. is people who can work with numbers. Hey, you can do Excel without any problem. Have we got a job for you? So then kids look at it and they say, well, what's going to give me the, 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 the most benefit you know, in the long term, which gives me the kinds of things that I want to work on. Uh, so <clears throat> the fact that you may see an increase in the number of kids going into engineering doesn't always mean <clears throat> you're going to see that same bump, you know, on the exit side, because there's kids that get into engineering because, you know, their high school counselor or mom and dad or whatever said, oh, you should get an engineering degree. And they get a couple of years in and they say, oh man, this is hard. Right. This isn't really interesting. You know, but by the same token, you know, a big fraction of engineers, you know, in, in five years aren't necessarily doing engineering. They're managers at a company or, right. you know, people want the technical skills. And so uh, by the same token, companies always say, we can't get enough engineers. We can't get enough engineers. And somebody like I look at that and I say, well, jack up your salaries and they'll right. show up at your door. Right. Uh, you know, so it's the it's you know it's the supply and demand, and then they you know say, oh, we should have you know more H one H one B visas in this country because we can bring in more of these people from other countries, and you know so there's that there's always that battle going on. So, uh, you know, if if the chip chips act succeeds, they're going to need a heck of a lot more engineers to you know outfit these fab facilities. Are they going to be able to find them? Probably not as many as they would like, but they'll figure out, you know, right. how, how to move forward. I mean, it's the same old thing. If it gets dire enough, they'll dangle more money out there and be able to, you know, get bodies to to fill those positions. So, uh, you know, it, right. in the end, it always comes back to supply and demand and what the young students look at and see as a possible, you know, path forward. I, you know, I saw an, right. an article the other day where they were, somebody came up with a number that like, oh, 25% of all kids between 15 and 20 want to become social influencers or something, right? They see that as, oh, that's my career. So, right. you know, you keep doing what you're doing and uh, you'll, you know, it, it, it's, it'll solve itself but it's never a solution that, you know, is right around the corner. And it's always going to be a problem because, you know, engineering is hard and not everybody can do it uh, and not everybody wants to do it. Uh, you know, so we'll see where we are. Uh, exactly. No bucks, no buck Rogers, and you have to pay for talent. Uh, Paul, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And it was great to have you on the program. Thanks so much. Sure. Thanks. Good luck. Take care. And joining us now is Dr. Arun Serafin. He is the executive director of NDIA's Emerging Technologies Institute. Arun, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. It's an honor and pleasure having another material scientist on the program. Thanks for having me, Vago. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, priorities uh, in uh, a moment, but uh, you know, since we were talking about LK99 and Paul joined us at the top of the show to talk about it, I mean, you know, it's another one of these uh, great and and uh, you know, hope collides with reality, and uh, it it didn't deliver. But talk to us in, uh, about an 
an example like that that got you on the material sciences track of a of a of a promising notion that maybe did not bear engineering fruit? Yeah, the, the talk about LK99 reminds me of my misspent youth. In, in the summer of 1987, when I was a graduating high school senior, it was also the summer where the physics world thought they were going to develop high temperature superconductors from exotic ceramic materials. And every physicist, material scientist in the world thought they were going to do it that summer. So me as a high school uh, intern in a research laboratory at Stony Brook University was hard at work for a, for a professor who was doing that, making superconducting ceramic pellets, seeing if they were actually going to go this low resistance at room temperature and, and exhibit the fancy magnetic properties. And uh, long story short, it didn't work. We didn't get to room temperature, but it did put me on a track to get eventually a PhD in material science. And so now I see this sort of history repeating myself and it makes me chuckle a little bit that, you know, even if this doesn't quite work out the way everyone claims it's going to, it will affect a lot of lives. It will excite some people. It will get more people interested right. in science and so, and, and that's what happened to me. Now I will admit, I did lose course at some point and moved into much more of a technology policy space and ended up taking my PhD and taking it over to Capitol Hill and working as a science advisor to, to senators and, and over at the White House. And, and now right. have happily landed here at NDIA's Emerging Technologies Institute. Uh, it's amazing how things uh, go uh, full circle. I should say you got your PhD at MIT, so not not too shabby. A pretty pretty leading material science uh, program and engineering program. Um, talk to us a little bit uh, about uh, your priorities for the program. The ETI founder was Dr. Mark Lewis. He's now at uh, Purdue uh, University. Talk to us about some of your priorities for the program, which is unique in that you guys are bearing an eye on technology, on policy, uh, but uh, as well on how uh, to advance the interests of your membership as, as well. Talk to us a little bit about your priorities and how you're going to be working with government to do that. Yeah. And, I, you know, following in the footsteps of Mark, who was my uh, my boss and a great mentor for me and a great friend over the years, uh, we're trying to make the Emerging Technic Technologies Institute a part of NDIA that can help amplify NDIA member voices in the in the important dialogue that we're having in town about how emerging technologies are going to shape the future of national defense. And we're trying to make it a place where uh, NDIA members, whether they're industry, academic, or government folks, whether they're member companies that are big, small, commercial, or universities, uh, can participate in the dialogue on how should we be investing in these emerging technologies, and how should we shape the policy environment so that we can deliver those technologies as effectively and efficiently into the hands of the warfighter as possible. That's one part technical conversation and one part policy conversation, and that's where we're trying to position ourselves because I think the feeling is that a voice that's been missing in those conversations is the voice of the technical realism coming from industry and academic expertise, the business and manufacturing understanding that comes from NDIA members. And, and those kinds of voices, I think, can help shape an environment which will allow for better use of resources and more rapid turning good ideas into manufacturable ideas and then fieldable ideas. Where do you think, um, right, I mean, because we are in an era of um, a little bit of showmanship, right? There is a lot of BSRE that su surrounds uh, the innovation space, unfortunately, and that has a tendency of actually clouding uh, what the art of the possible is and where things are moving the fastest. From your standpoint, 
what are the pucks you're trying to, uh, you know, skate to, if you if you will, right? What are the technologies that you think are the most important and interesting ones from a national security perspective that may be getting lost in in the maybe the the, the smoking mirrors that goes with with the entire? There, some of it is very legitimate in the innovation game, but some of it maybe a little bit less so. Now, I would say our starting point is the critical technology areas identified by the the Biden administration or the the modernization priorities of the previous administration, that's a reasonable starting point. So they selected 12 or 14 technologies which they thought were the most important to shape the future of national defense. And honestly, you know, our portfolio is, is aligned to that. So the things like hypersonics, directed energy, AI, microelectronics, uh, et cetera. Um, I think the difference between what we're going to do to avoid uh, looking at only shiny objects or being overly optimistic or overly pessimistic about any technology is that we can bring that voice of realism and an understanding of how hard it is to develop a new technology, how hard it is to transition it through both the technical difficulties of getting something to work and then the programmatic acquisition policy barriers that keep you from delivering the technology. And so I think, you know, looking at that broad scope of technologies, uh, gathering the vast expertise of NDIA, both on the technical and business side, allows us to go after that. So for example, uh, recently in the in the, this summer, earlier this summer, we delivered a report on hypersonic supply chains, which right. you know starts with the premise that DOD is going to live up to what it's budgeting for and claiming it will do and deliver some very interesting hypersonic uh, weapon capabilities in the near future. Well, I mean, ETI took that one step further and said, okay, if you're going to be able to deliver those technologies, are you also going to be able to have a supply chain in place which sustains those technologies? So can you manufacture them at scale? Can you keep them in the field? Can you keep producing them at scale? And that's a, a level of question that you get to after you get past the hype and the shiny objectism of a new technology. And it gets down to the more realistic, what do I need to turn these hypersonic uh, weapon ideas and prototypes into programs of record, sustainable systems. And so I think what we want to position ourselves in is in that place where we can deliver actionable recommendations informed by this kind of business expertise, industrial technical expertise, where the recommendations can then go to DOD, Congress, and even industry itself and say, right. here are some specific steps we all need to take in order to really be able to deliver these capabilities. You know, uh, speaking of uh, uh, working closely with policymakers, you guys are having uh, next week your big uh, policy conference at the JW Marriott in downtown uh, Washington, D.C. between uh, Monday the 28th and, and Wednesday uh, the 30th. Uh, you're going to have some very heavy hitters. Dr. Uh, Hicks, uh, the Deputy Defense Secretary, will be, will be there. Uh, uh, Bill LaPlante, uh, the Acquisition and Sustainment Secretary. Heidi Shu uh, from uh, Research and Engineering, as well as Lung Aquilina. What do you hope to accomplish? Uh, Arun, uh, with that conference uh, and with uh, the trade show, um, I understand you're fully subscribed. And how does that play into your programming agenda through uh, the end of the year? 
Yeah, so August 28th to 30th at the JW Marriott in downtown DC, we're gathering for the first annual Emerging Technologies Conference and Exhibition. So a large NDIA conference with those kinds of keynote speakers that you mentioned, and you you left out a whole bunch of exciting ones. Uh, the, the director of DARPA, the undersecretary of the Army, the undersecretary of the Air Force, and a host of others. And the idea is to gather together a group of industry, academia, government, uh, think tankers, uh, policy people, technical people, to talk about how emerging technologies are going to shape the future of national defense. Now, it's decidedly not a science conference. It's a conference focused on technologies that can be delivered within the decade, primarily 2025 to 2027. And the, the planners uh, from both the Pentagon side and the NDIA side focused in on three major mission areas, namely contested logistics, uh, counter UAS and operational energies, energy. And those are three mission areas that are really shaping the way uh, the conflict's being uh, played out in Ukraine, what we anticipate that we'll see in any large scale uh, action in the Pacific, and also based on a lot of lessons learned from Iraq and Afghanistan. And those three missionaries we feel are, are all shaped by the game changing emerging technologies that we've talked about earlier. And, and that'll be the other theme in the conference. So you'll see discussion of business opportunities and an unclassified discussion of operational challenges in those missionaries, but a lot of in-depth discussion about the technologies that can feed into those missionaries. So there'll be detailed right. discussions of artificial intelligence, microelectronics, biotechnology, it, like a classic NDIA conference, technical detailed presentations, technical posters, and a large exhibit floor with uh, industry and academic members showing off what they're doing in some of those technical areas. Uh, it sounds like it's uh, going to be absolutely uh, terrific. Uh, break a leg uh, on it uh, and break a leg in, uh, with the rest of the programming over the course of the year, Arun, and look forward to having you back on as a regular voice on our program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I hope everyone tunes into what happens at the conference and visits our website, emergingtechnologiesinstitute.org, to see all the activities going on in ETI in the fall and, and even in the new year. And uh, for people to tune into your great podcast. Yes, we have a YouTube page as well. You can find us by Googling NDIA ETI YouTube. Uh, I am an amateur, but I think I'm getting better at being a podcast host. So someday, hopefully, be as good as you. Oh, you're too kind. Thanks very much, Arun. Best of luck. Thanks very much for having me.